Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, our pastor, David Lunsford, is continuing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John. Open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, please. John, chapter 4. <clears throat> At our daughter's wedding a couple weeks ago, the, the, uh, for those of you that don't know, my daughter married a man from El Salvador, and so uh, his family speaks English or speaks Spanish as their primary language. and and so we uh, had the, uh, the message, the sermon that I spoke at the wedding translated by his cousin. And uh, as I interacted with those folks who were Spanish-only speakers, I, I reflected on uh, a number of things in regard to the Spanish language. And one of them that, that has always tickled me as I, I remembered it is from Spain. When we visited some missionaries there, one of our friends named Rich Brown, when he was learning Spanish, he was having a hard time. And some small child, about five or six years old, looked up at him and he said, Mister, what is the problem? You just open your mouth and it comes out. <laughs> to that little boy, speaking Spanish was natural, but even he didn't realize that he was taught. He, he had to learn to speak as we come to John chapter 4, we're going to watch the disciples learn about ministry. Doing God's work is not natural, either in its content or its method. It is supernatural. And so God is going to talk to them about some of their, their attitudes, if you will, some of their beliefs about ministry. We're going to start in verse 27 of John chapter 4. <clears throat> And for those of you that haven't been here in the previous weeks, Jesus has been having a, a discussion with a woman who is not a believer. He's been talking to her about the truth of God. And verse 27 says, At this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men of that city, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. They're, don't you love? The disciples are so dense at this point. They really aren't getting it. Verse 33, therefore the disciples said to one another, has somebody brought him something to eat? Because they, they, they're thinking, we went to get food. Did somebody bring you food? What's going on? Jesus said, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. We're only going to focus on the part of this passage that has to do with Jesus and the disciples. We're going to come back next week to look at the part that has to do with this woman and the men coming back and talking to Christ about their own personal souls. But as we consider Jesus and what he was trying to teach the disciples, the first thing that we understand is this. Doing God's work requires humility. And first of all, it requires humility toward men or toward mankind, toward human beings. Look at verse 27. We've, we've mentioned this several times throughout our sermons on this chapter. But again... And his disciples, the men that became the apostles, they came and marveled that he talked with a woman. Now the word marveled is the same word used elsewhere in the scripture for people's response to a miracle. When Jesus would do a miracle, people would, their, draw would drop, their jaw would drop open and they'd go, wow, what in the world? What just happened? Well, when they came and saw him talking to a woman, they had the same response. They went, what are you doing? Now, to those of us today in politically correct America, we're thinking, boy, these guys were really chauvinist pigs. And the truth be told, that's about half true. Now, don't blame them individually too hard for their whole society was that way. And one of the things, just as a sidebar as we go along here, understand this, folks, that it is not Christianity that has enslaved women over the years. It's Jesus Christ talking to a woman, bucking the trend of his society. And hence the idea of humility toward men. If Jesus had wanted to make himself into a great man in the eyes of his society, when that woman came along, he would have turned the other way. And he would not have spoken a word to her because the common teaching of his day in Jewish circles was that either you're wasting your time trying to teach a woman something as though they're incapable of learning or you're, you're actually, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, you're actually making yourself dirty by talking to her. Not sexually dirty, but like you're, you're soiling yourself with this, with this uh, you know, waste of human flesh. It was really a terrible attitude. Jesus knew what people would think if he talked to a woman. He knew what they would think, but he doesn't care. And that's kind of the attitude we need to have, not, not about women so much, just as about people in general. There were people who needed to know him, and it started with this woman. Let me just put it this way to you. There were no people too low for Jesus to love. And the question that we have to ask today about our own humility is this. Who is it that is not on your radar screen of ministry? As you would look around yourself in the world today, maybe you'd say, oh, those Arabs. They can just all go to heck. If you think that way, it's wrong. Maybe you would look at your neighbors. Oh, those neighbors, you won't believe what they do. And so consequently, you, you shut yourself off from them. I, I, I've seen an attitude in, in, in this regard recently that just shocks me that one person would, 
would seemingly shut somebody else and their family out because of their own prejudicial ideas as though it's okay for them to go to hell if they don't match up to certain standards. Who, there, who is there in the world that you don't like? Who there, is there in the world that you think is beyond help? Years ago when I was a youth pastor over at Nooksack Valley Baptist, there was a commonly used insult name for Canadians. And if you're Canadian today, I hope you understand that I don't think this way. I'm using this as an example. They called them cheeseheads. Now, I don't know why that's a, I don't know, maybe because they have holes in the head. I don't know what that's about. I mean, because they think they do. Cheeseheads. One day I saw a car going down the road. And the car was not brand new by a long shot. And it had a big old dent in one side, kind of like they'd had a big old collision. And in spray-painted letters right on the car, it said, Hit by a cheesehead. Folks, we cannot let ourselves speak poorly of any kind of a human being. We really, and, and it's a discipline. It's funny, you know, any of those kinds of jokes when you talk about a cheesehead or a person from this country or that ethnicity, you know, there's a little bit of humor in there and so we snicker at them. It's a discipline to stop and say, you know what, that is a soul for whom Jesus died. And I don't care what kind of a person is, I have got to, even if I think in my head, which is wrong, I have to lower myself. If that's what it takes, I will do that. Jesus lowered himself. In, in this particular case, he was lowering himself twice. Once because it was a woman, and another time because she was a Samaritan with whom the Jewish people had no dealings because of old problems, some of them legitimate, some of them not. Jesus said, I don't care who she is or what she is, she needs to come to faith in God. Humility toward men. If you are going to be an effective servant of God, if you are going to help people come to be disciples of Christ, you've got to be humble toward men. You've also got to be humble toward God. Look at verse 34. Look what Jesus says here. All right, let's start back at, you know, verse 32, they said, or verse 31, they, they eat something, eat something. You need to tend to your own needs here. And he says, I have food, in verse 32, I have food to which you do not know. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Listen to these verses that talk about Jesus following the will of God. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had, sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus Christ came to do the will of God the Father. In Luke 22, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's going to start being uh, physically tormented and then ultimately crucified. And what we see here is that 
as a full-natured human being, Jesus did not want to go through this terrible torment. And yet he said, God, I'm here to do your will, not my will. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. Jesus Christ did not think, oh, oh, ha, 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 I'm on the cross, ha, ha, ha. No, it was a terrible, shameful, physically tormenting thing, but he did it because it was God's will and God's way to bring about his ministry. Jesus subjugated all of his personal desires to the mission on which he was sent. He was mission-driven, not driven by personal desires. And I would ask you today, what is it that drives your life? Do you think like this, like Jesus did when he said, it doesn't matter that I'm, that I'm late eating lunch. I'm here doing God's work with this woman. Now, lest you get a wrong idea, I'm not extolling the virtue of skipping meals. And neither was Jesus. Jesus was not like some of these religious extremists who would say, oh yes, we have to not eat or we have to not drink or we have to do this or that. No, no, no. He was just saying there are times when accomplishing the will of God means setting aside the fulfillment of my personal needs. I'm willing to sacrifice something for God. That's what he was saying, very simply. And I would ask you today, are you a man or a woman who is living under the orders, under the plan of God in such a way that there are times when you deny yourself to accomplish God's work. Let me put it very plainly. When opportunities to serve here in the church are brought your way, do you first of all ask God what he wants you to do? Or do you first consult your daytimer and say, oh no, I have no time for that, I'm busy. My personal plans are such that I will not have time to participate in God's ministry. Now again, I don't think God wants you to totally set aside your life as in never eat, never drink, never take a shower. Lord, have mercy. We want you to take a shower. We want you to love your family. But do you have such a concept of God's will that you say, and I am going to do God's will even if there are times when it affects what I eat or when I eat or where I eat. What are, the, what are the orders that we are supposed to be living under? Well, God commands us to spread his gospel to all people. That's a clear, revealed part of the will of God. God says to do that. God commands us to use the abilities he has given to us for ministry. He calls them spiritual gifts. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, God has put within you an ability to serve God here in the church in some unique spiritual way. God commands us to use our material resource to support his ministry in the world. When you hear us talking about taking an offering or raising the budget or whatever, do you stop and say, God, I need to be part of that. Will you help me to know how to be part of that? Or do you say, my personal priorities are different. I can't afford to participate in this. Can you hear Jesus saying that? Yeah, I can't afford to do this. I'm sorry, I'm busy. I'm sorry. No, 
he would have laid down his life. God commands us to be growing in Christ and to be helping others to do so. And we could go on and on, of course, but the big question is, are you living under the will of God or under your own will? Clearly here, these events followed the path that they did because Jesus was living under the will of God. He was tired and hungry and thirsty and yet his goal in life was not to rest and get something to eat and get something to drink. His goal in life was to do God's will no matter what it took. Well, the disciples had to learn that. They had to learn that there was something more important than their stomach at times. And then they had to learn this other truth. They had to learn about the partnership of ministry. Look what he says there in verse 36. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. God talks about a partnership in ministry. And here he's talking in part about a partnership between uh, different people and the identity of the partners are these. Very simply, there is a person who sows the word of God. And in, in telling this, of course, all of Jesus' truth comes together. And you could look in Matthew at the parable of the sower and the seed and how that goes. But God likens the truth of his word to seeds that are scattered. And then the people who hear those, those seeds of truth are ground they are either good, tilled-up ground, ready to receive the seed, and, and the seed germinates and springs up to faith and to action, or they are hard ground. People who, because of the cares of the world or because of their hearts are sinful, reject God's word eventually, some sooner and some later. But the Christian people who are carrying on ministry are scattering the seed. They are sowing the seed. They are spreading God's truth. Certainly I'm doing that every Sunday morning. I do it here. I do it in my office. We do it. You, most of you don't do it in a formal sense like this. Most of us, most of the time, have opportunities to do this in a casual sense. When we're here, when we're there. Um, I forget who told me this this week, but they, were, they, were li they heard Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, uh, being interviewed. He, he is the head of a ministry called Samaritan's Purse, and they do charitable works around the world, and, they, and through those charitable works, they spread the gospel of Christ. And he was interviewed on 60 Minutes or one of those kinds of shows, and uh, they were interviewing him about his work, and as soon as they asked him a question, the first thing out of his mouth was a, obviously he had thought it through ahead of time, in about 30 seconds, he shared the whole gospel. Boom, just like that. And they asked more questions, and later on, they asked him another question. Boom, he did it again. He was ready to plant the seed to the whole country that's watching that TV show. He was planting the seed, planting the seed, spreading God's truth, spreading God's truth all the time, all the time. Jesus said there are, there are people who plant the seed, there are people who reap the seed or who bring in the harvest. What does it mean in, in God's term to, to be the reaper, to be the joyful reaper, not the grim reaper. The joyful reaper is the person who is able to talk with a person who's had these seeds planted over time, and they sit down and say, wouldn't you like to receive Christ as your Savior? And they say yes, and they, they, they read the scripture, and they pray together, and this person expresses their faith in God, and, and, and that person is, is called the reaper, the harvester, the person who brings in the harvest. 
Um, now he's talking to these disciples and saying, look, some people re- plant, some people harvest. He's not saying that's an exclusive thing. He's not saying now, okay, everybody says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the seed scatterer, but I, I never really put people on the spot. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, there's a, there's, a, there's a casting of the seeds, and then there's the harvesting of the crop, and it's going on all the time. Uh, Christian people everywhere are part of this process, but there's one more person who is in this partnership, and the partner is God. It's God. And Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians. Who then is Paul, and who's Apollos? Apollos was another preacher, uh, not an apostle, but another preacher, Uh, Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Here he verbalizes it a little differently. He says somebody puts the seed out there, then somebody else comes along and maybe explains something or gives a witness to it, and then God makes it grow up. God makes it grow up. God causes the faith to come. So then neither who, he, he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but the important person is God who gives the increase. Now he was having to talk this way to these people because they were all wrapped up in their little cliques in the church, and he says, wait a minute, folks. You're missing it here. Uh, we're, not the, we're not the critical partners here. God is the critical partner. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. A um, friend of mine uh, is named Bill Tate. He's a chaplain at Group Health Hospital. Some of you have heard him preach. He's been here to fill in for me when I've been gone a few times. He sends out a little newsletter called The Chaplain's Communique. And Bill is on call at the group health hospital um, if people are, especially toward the end of their life, and uh, they want a pastor to come visit uh, or the chaplain. The hospital staff is aware of that. They'll page him. They'll let him know, and, and he'll come and visit people. And here's one of those calls. Around 9.30, I was asked to go be with a 79-year-old little lady whose 87-year-old husband had just died rather unexpectedly. Their only son lives in a distant state. She shouldn't be alone, so I stayed with her for nearly three hours until friends and assistants were available for her. We chatted. She filled me in on how she and her husband met, their experiences of living and working abroad for so many years, etc. It was very interesting. Obviously, we don't take advantage of someone in grief, but since we had so much time together, I began to inquire about her background. She opened up and began to share how she had been sort of searching spiritually. Without being critical, she said she had visited several churches but didn't find what I felt I needed. Then she mentioned a church, and Bill adds a good one, where she said, I felt like I was hearing the truth of God. That's the planting of the seed, planting of the seed. Somewhat changing the subject, she went on to say that her son and his family had been deeply involved in a church for the past two or three years. By her description, I knew it was a sound church. They are so changed. They are so satisfied and happy now, she said. That's the water. Water in that seed. With this opening, I felt impressed to follow through. 
So building on the sermons she had heard and the changed lives of her son and his family, I began to tell her that God isn't much interested in our labels. It's what's in our hearts and our personal relationship with Christ. She listened intently, letting silence prevail for a moment. I got up and went over and put my arm around her and quietly asked, would you like for us to pray and for you to confirm your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Yes, I would. And that's the reaping. That's how God intends the ministry to happen. Plant the seeds, water in the seeds, and when the time is right, to harvest the seeds. We make a lot of mistakes in the ministry. Sometimes we're in a hurry. We, we, we want to present the gospel to somebody and say, this is what you need to believe, and if you don't believe it right now, I'm out of here. Of course, we don't say that last part, but that's what we think, and that's what we do. And we go away saying, well, they're a tough case. And the truth is, it's God who gives the increase, not you. That's why I'm so glad to be in a partnership with God. It's me and you and you and you and all of us and God, and we're working together. And so we scatter the seed of the gospel, and when it's appropriate, we seek to harvest that seed. The team nature of this ministry is simply this. God works through us. There's a, there's, there's a little truth here that's, that's almost starting to fall into disrepair in Christian circles today, and it's that simple truth. God works through us. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the command of Jesus. Go and make disciples. He doesn't say go out and believe and build a wonderful, beautiful church and sit in that church every Sunday and, and think good thoughts. He says go make disciples. Go do the work. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts 1.8, Jesus puts it this way. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And to the end of the earth. We are in a partnership with God. Look how much, how, how significant this partnership is. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or holding their sins against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, God is not going to come down and speak to unbelievers by himself. He isn't going to do it, not because he's incapable, but because he has chosen to work through us. Now, God is capable of getting his work done without you individually, but not without the body of Christ as a whole. You can choose to not be involved in ministry, to sit on your hands, to ignore the opportunities, and God will work around you. I firmly believe that. But you cannot call yourself a disciple while you're doing that. We are in a partnership with God. 
And it's such a wonderful thing to be teamed up with him because we don't have to, to feel like we're all alone. We are God's fellow workers. We're working together with God. What, what a marvelous opportunity is for us. Arthur Pink, in commenting on this verse, says that the ministry is a holy partnership between those who work on the different departments of spiritual agriculture. In other words, there's planting and reaping and watering and all these things going on. We're all working together with God. A number of years ago at our, at our spring fellowship meetings of the regular Baptist, some pastor had the bright idea to plan a golf tournament, and it was a best ball tournament, and you know, I don't know much about golf, but a best ball tournament is where two guys both hit the ball off the tee, and whichever one is the best shot, then that one goes next. So if one guy hits a real long drive, then the other guy hits it, and they go on from there, and it's kind of a teamwork thing. So being the really great golfer that I was, I said, yeah, I'm gonna play golf, you know? And so you're supposed to put down your average score on 18 holes. Well, I only play nine at a time, so I just doubled what I do on, you know, nine, and Sure enough, mine was the worst score of all the people they laid out there. So thankfully, what they did was they teamed, to make the competition even, they teamed up the worst person with the best person. And the, best, the person with the best score coming in to play at that tournament was a guy named Herm Weaver, who used to be a place kicker for the Seahawks. And at that time, he was a member of one of our churches. And somebody said, hey, why don't you come out and play golf with us? And Herm Weaver came out and met Dave Lunsford. <laughs> And we golfed together, baby. <laughs> so, you know, I get up there and I, I hack the ball. And Herm Weaver gets up there. And, and it goes like a bullet at about eye level. <laughs> say, yeah, that's my partner. Man, that guy was frustrated. <laughs> he was kind but frustrated. What do you think it's like for God partnering up with us? I'm excited to be working with God. <laughs> but I'm afraid sometimes he's probably not that excited. But you know what? He partners on, just like Herm Weaver did. And he gets the work done eventually. We're in a partnership with God. What a wonderful thing. These disciples needed to learn that. Look, you're not going out there on your own. It's going to be tough. Yeah, it's hard to share the gospel sometimes. Yeah, it's hard to look somebody right in the eye and say, do you know Jesus? Would you like to? Yeah, that's hard. But we're in this with God together. We're also in it with the entire body of Christ. What I read to you there from, from, uh, from Bill Tate clearly indicated this woman had gone to a church on her own and there was ministry and then her own family which was involved in a whole nother church they ministered to her and then here she is at the group health hospital with bill tate ministering to her this is the body of christ doing god's work and that's one of the reasons we ought to value folks outside of our church because God works all around us. Sometimes we'll plant the seed and maybe they'll go, they'll move on or they'll move away and they go to some other church and they'll reap the harvest and sometimes it's the other way around. You've got coworkers that, Lord willing, you're trying to, to uh, plant the seed with them. We have got to work together in this 
Listen, in 1 Corinthians, these people were not working together. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal or worldly, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it, and even now you're not still not able, for you're carnal, for where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who's Apollos but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God, and so on. He says, we have got to get past our petty pride issues and say we are a team we are working together what does a really good team player on a sports team want he wants the team to win i think one of the reasons the seahawks did better this year was because sean allen checked his ego at the door he's a great player he's a christian for sure, as a Christian, he ought to check his ego at the door, but also as a team player. Everyone in the world who truly believes in Christ plants seeds of the gospel truth and waters those seeds and is on our team, and we are on, those, on their team. And within these walls, we are a team. You may not be the one who does this part of the ministry or that but we are all working together and we've got to work at working together. When God goes, Jesus Christ finishes up with these disciples and gives them some motivation for ministry. The first motivation for ministry is that God's work saves soul. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? He's using a proverb, uh, a common everyday proverb about uh, planting and harvesting in terms of farming. Do you not say there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. We ought to be motivated to ministry because God's work saves souls. He says here that the fields are already white. Now, I'm not much of a farmer. I'm gonna share a little bit more about that in a minute, but I know that when crops are ripe, like wheat, the wheat is golden when it's ready to be harvested. But if you leave it stand there long enough, it will start to turn whitish. And I believe what Jesus was trying to say to these disciples was, look, folks, the time is, is now, it's past due People are ready to come to Christ. The fields are white. And I believe in particular, the, and we'll talk about this next week, these people are walking back down from town. They've been with the, the woman, went off, and she brought these people back. I think he's also looking up saying, look, guys, look at all these people coming to investigate a faith in God. He said, the fields are white, and they're past due for harvesting. And what's going to happen as a result of your work is fruit for eternal life. People are going to get saved and they're going to have eternal life in heaven. Fred is a name that I'll use for somebody I knew many years ago. Came to our church in, in Tukwila, was a, had been enslaved to alcohol and drugs 
He was in the process of cleaning up his life. And his brother had gotten cleaned up earlier and was part of our church. And he brought his, his, uh, his brother Fred in. And uh, he had been going to, uh, to a, a, an organization that teaches people there are certain steps that they need to do in order to get rid of their enslavement. And one of those steps is that he needed to turn his life over to the higher power as he knew him. That you cannot control your own life you need to turn your life over to them and so he came in and sat in my office he says i want to do this step i want to turn my life over to the higher power so i can help you with that and so i just opened up the bible and shared christ with him and he put his faith in christ and he went on to get baptized and to be discipled by one of our deacons i don't know if they ever finished that bible study but they worked at it for several years and uh he became our church janitor, and in time, a, a lovely widow, a young widow about his age, he was about 35 at the time, came into the church, and they got married, and he finished his educational program and got a good job for the first time in his life, and, he, and they had kids, and as far as I know, they're still living for the Lord and still active for him, and someday I'm going to see them in heaven. Do events like that motivate me to do the ministry? Yeah, yeah. Helping a guy get control of his life, helping a guy get his life squared away to where he can, he can have a joyful, productive existence under the will of God now and spend eternity in heaven. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord sometimes you might stand up to teach a Sunday school class or you might uh, witness to a neighbor or you might spread the seed one way or the other and you go away from it thinking, well, nothing happened. You know what? Only eternity is going to be able to tell you what happened with all the seed that you planted. We need to know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we need to keep spreading the seed and we need to keep sharing God's truth and we need to keep watering that as though souls depended on it because they do. God's work will bring souls. God's work saves souls. Secondly, God's work will bring reward to your soul. Look at verse 36 again. He who reaps receives wages and he gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. God says, look, there's going to be rejoicing in heaven, and it's going to be on the part of the sower and on the part of the reaper and on the part of those people who have come to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us you know, that right after Paul... Um, exhorts those people about their pridefulness and about how they're, they're not serving the Lord genuinely, he goes on to say, look what's ahead. For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. In this passage, he's saying, look, folks, as you live your Christian life day by day, you are either serving God with a genuine heart, therefore building up gold, silver, and precious stone, rewards that cannot be burned with fire, 
or you are living for yourself, and when God applies the fire of his gaze to your life, all of that self-living will be burned up and there will be nothing for a reward left. He says it's possible, it's possible for you to live your life for God and receive a reward in heaven to be recognized by God for your service to him. I think sometimes as Christians we get the idea that it would be maybe arrogant or prideful to desire the recognition of God. But I think it's akin to the idea of wanting your parents' approval or of, or of serving genuinely and then being recognized for it. One year at the, the annual dinner for uh, Tukwila uh, employees, the city of Tukwila, when I was serving as a chaplain there, after the mayor finished his regular awards, he says, now we've got one other special award. And he went on and talked a little bit, and pretty soon it became obvious he's talking about me. And I didn't get paid by the city of Tukwila, but I was there. And I'd been serving for five years, and that particular year I had probably put in twice as much time as the year before because that's what they asked me to do. And he said, we're going to give this special recognition to Dave Lunsford. I thought, what? A, I just, I felt, wow, look at that. They've, they've recognized my work. Now, I wasn't serving during the year just to get that award, but man, I felt good when they recognized me. Can you imagine what it'll feel like when God looks at you face to face and says, here's a recognition for your work? Man, any other human recognition you've ever gotten will just pale in comparison. I won't be thinking about that silly plaque I got from the city of Tukwila. I won't be thinking about my varsity letter that I earned playing tennis. And I won't be thinking about my college diploma or, or anything else that I've, that I've worked and served and, and been rewarded for. God will be saying to me, you did a good job preaching down there in Ferndale. God tells us the rewards are out there and we should be thinking ahead and saying, you know what? I can live my life in such a way that God will recognize my work. There's a third way that, that the work of God feeds us, that it motivates us. Look here at verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat, but he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And then verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. God's work can feed your soul. Now, don't think that I'm getting goofy on you here. I still believe in eating dinner. I got a nice roast beef in the oven at home waiting for me. I, I, in no way am I, am I trying to promote the idea that if you do God's work, you'll never be hungry. That's not what Jesus was saying, folks. He wasn't talking about his physical existence. He was saying, when I do God's work, it nourishes my soul. It satisfies my soul down deep inside. Why is that? First of all, all obedience to God yields spirit fruit. What is the spirit fruit? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Even just thinking about the fruit of the Spirit being joy, what that tells me is, is that if I, with a genuine heart, serve God and do His will, one of the products in my life will be joy. 
How many people in the world are just trying to live their life to be happy and going from one thing to another, trying to get happiness? And what happens? If a man hangs on to his soul, God says he loses it. And yet the person who devotes themselves to God, who says, I will seek his righteousness and I will put that first in my life, then all of these other things are added, including the things that the Spirit builds in us, the love, the joy, and the peace, and the patience, and the goodness, and faithfulness, and all of those things. All obedience yields spirit fruit. Secondly, spiritual work yields a sense of purpose and meaning in life. I had a job once in a potato packing shed. One of my deacons ran this thing, and I was a home missionary, and so I took a little side work here and there. Said, hey, if you're going to run potatoes sometime, I'd, I'll work a little bit. So he said, yeah, we're going to run potatoes for two weeks. You want to come work? Yeah. So he gave me a job. I, I got kind of a white collar job. I had to make sure the potatoes were the right weight in the box. You know, they had the cleaning and the sorting and the boxing. And when they got there, I either took one out or put one in and sent them on their way, you know. Man, that was a great job. <laughs> <laughs> made me knew why I went to college, you know. The truth is that any work can seem meaningless or boring or a drudgery without God's great purpose in life. If I'd have been really thinking spiritually, I'd have been thinking, hey, I'm here in a potato shed. There's a bunch of people I've never seen before. Maybe I could take God's ministry to them. But no, I'm not thinking that way. I'm just so immature. All I'm thinking about is getting done, going home. God's work yields a sense of purpose. When we are involved in doing God's work, whether it's out there on the, in the workplace or here at church or wherever it might be, spiritual work yields purpose and that nourishes the soul. I tried to grow a garden once. One of my men in Boardman, Oregon said, you can grow anything in the desert. You put enough water and fertilizer in there, you can grow anything in that sand. And I said, yeah, that's for me. I can grow anything, you know. And he gave me some seed potatoes right from the factory there. And I cared for my row of potatoes the best I could all summer long. I had large, lovely potato plants. And in the fall, off of that whole row of potatoes, I harvested the most beautiful half gallon of miniature potatoes you've ever seen. <laughs> And I haven't wasted any time in a garden since then. <laughs> now, obviously, is the problem the garden or is the problem me? Well, the problem's me. I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant about gardening. Hey, friends, the ministry of God is never a waste. Is never a waste. God's work always bears fruit in one way or another. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to be about your business. Help us to be about the business of making disciples, of helping people come to faith in Christ and helping them grow up in Christ. Help us even to be willing to sacrifice our personal comforts our personal agendas as you burden us to do that 
Father, make your word live in our hearts today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.